Welcome to the Speaking of Kids podcast. Speaking of Kids is brought to you by Kids Centered, a multidisciplinary center for children with special needs in the Massachusetts Metro West area and beyond. I'm Dr. Aiden Durin Miles Mason. I'm here with Joni McLaughlin. She's our new addition to Kids Centered. Wanted to give you a brief introduction. She's been a special educator for the past 25 years. She's worked at the Landmark School, a specialized school designed to educate students with language-based learning disabilities in Manchester, Massachusetts for over 20 years. She was one of the teachers that founded the elementary school program. She has taught in all the curricular areas and provided one-to-one reading tutorials. She's also served as an academic advisor and public school liaison, and she's been heavily involved in progress monitoring for students. She also taught in a language-based program within the public school system. So welcome, Joni, to the podcast. We're delighted to have you and delighted to have you on the Kids Center team. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Thank you, Ava. It's great to have you. Um, So before we get started, I just wanted to introduce the topic. We're going to be talking about language-based instruction and language-based classrooms. So you're certainly an expert in this topic since you've been doing it for your entire career. I'm really interested in hearing um, about your experiences and your expertise. Before we start to, to, to frame our discussion, can you tell us a little bit about the students that are receive language-based instruction or in language-based classrooms? What kind of challenges do they have? What kind of uh, disability categories do they uh, do they present with? So we get a sense of what students you're working with and what students receive this type of intervention. Sure. So the first uh, part of this that I like to elaborate on is that there are four domains to language, reading, speaking, listening, and writing. And so a student with a language-based learning disability has a disability in, what, in presenting themselves in at least one of those four areas and usually multiple areas. Oftentimes, students with language-based learning disabilities may have a diagnosis of dyslexia, which indicates that one of their primary challenges is phonemic awareness, um, often with rapid naming and really interfering with learning to read efficiently. Uh, In addition, um, that impacts comprehension because if you're not able to decode efficiently, it typically impacts your reading comprehension. In addition, um, that lack of exposure to literature often impacts the development of vocabulary, which also impacts written production. So we see all four domains of language impacted um, in specifically language processing. So we have kind of almost, it sounds almost like a cascade of skills here. So I want to break it down a little bit because I think one of the things I wanted to to touch on in this podcast is often when we think about language-based instruction in language-based classrooms, the first thing we think about is dyslexia. Uh, And we think that that is a type of student that is served in this classroom is that correct? Sure. Yeah. And, and certainly that's the case. Um, but a lot of times what's happening for students with dyslexia and even without dyslexia is that language processing is much broader and students with dyslexia and students with other types of language-based disorders uh, struggle in, in multiple domains and their learning is, is affected in multiple areas. Uh, does that sound about right? You explain that very nicely. Yeah. yeah. So um, what I'm going to just do real quickly is I'm just going to d- provide a really quick uh, definition of dyslexia, but then we're going to move off of dyslexia specifically. We had um, a really nice podcast on dyslexia that our colleague Sharon Musto did. And Joni, you just, you touched, you did a nice uh, little description of dyslexia because it's only one facet of what would be covered in a language-based classroom. Uh, and there are lots of language-based issues that I think people aren't as as aware of that really affect how, how children learn and they really require intervention. So we're going to look at this a little bit more holistically today. So if we think about dyslexia, dyslexia by the uh, International Dyslexia Association is defined as a specific learning disability that is neurobiological in origin and characterized by difficulties with accurate and or fluent word recognition, poor spelling, and decoding. So that's one aspect. But Joni, what I'd love for you, and I think that's the part that most people are really familiar with, and often when we talk about someone needs a lang- needs language-based instruction or they need language-based a language-based classroom, we often talk about the dyslexia being the primary driver of that. 
But what I'd really love to get for you to get into is what are some of the other language processing concerns, the other language pieces that we often see in dyslexia, or we might see without a dyslexia diagnosis that really impacts students? Because language processing skills are so important to everything we do. Our world is so verbal where we need to understand what people are saying. We need to be able to communicate. Um, and I would really love for you to give a framework for people to understand um, what those skills are and how language-based instruction affects them. Sure. So when you think about processing language, it impacts so many parts of your life and especially within a classroom setting. So you need to receptively be hearing the information that's that's being presented to you, be able to organize that and store that in your brain and then retrieve it, often on demand. So we have a pacing and efficiency aspect and students with language-based learning disabilities often struggle with rapid naming and rapid recall. And, And oftentimes we see deficits in working memory And so you have to factor that all into how you provide instruction for students with a language-based learning disability. And and you also have, for some, that expressive language piece. So when you think about the phases to learning, learning, uh, and and let's take a dyslexic profile. So let's look at um, learning to decode. Then, uh, and you're using so much cognitive energy initially learning to decode that you have an often had enough practice with comprehension strategies. So when you when you learn to decode and you become more efficient, you free up that cognitive energy to then try to, co- to comprehend what you're reading. And then the next phase of that really gets into that expressive language piece where you're asked to use oral or written language to express your comprehension. And often in a classroom, you're expected to do that within the flow of a classroom that can be often um, too fast paced for somebody who's struggling um, and needs remediation and language processing. And there's that that part of retrieving the language, organizing that language. So we have issues with syntax, grammar. If you haven't been exposed to a lot of text that you've been able to um, decode, you haven't had uh, a lot of models for proper syntax and proper grammar. And oftentimes with a language-based learning disability, they some students with language-based learning disabilities have strong oral language skills. Some have not used their oral language skills that often because when in a, a fast-paced environment where they're trying to process language, it's often hard to keep up in a conversation. It can be hard to keep up in a classroom discussion that rather than say something that might not meet the expectation, some students with language-based learning disabilities will choose not to actively participate for fear of of not presenting well. And so then you have lack of practice with that. So I find that the most um, effective language-based instruction really taps into those four domains of language as often as possible. So when I would design lessons, I would think about that and the structure of each lesson throughout my entire day. Just to review, the four domains we're talking about is reading and then writing speaking and listening. Before we go to the the reading and the writing, because I think those are the pieces that we see in school and then that get flagged often, let's talk about the speaking and the listening. So it's even before we are sort of looking at text and trying to read or we're trying to create output, we have these other skills that are related to language. We're thinking about kids that if we're thinking about the brain, anything that has to do with language processing, often in kids with quote unquote language-based learning disorders, these skills, the circuitry in their brain is functioning differently. So these four domains are not typically, they're, they're not functioning the same way. They don't all have the same profiles, but often it sounds like you're saying these four areas often are not developing appropriately. Some may, some of them, I'm not saying they all have issues with every area. Some of them might have great expressive language skills and poor receptive, um, et cetera, et cetera. But often there's inconsistency and weaknesses in some of these areas. Would that be accurate? That's very accurate. And thinking specifically about a student who might have um, very articulate with their oral language, and then you look at their written production and it there's a drastic difference. That's usually an indication that there's a language-based learning disability possibly there. So you you want to see both areas developing and that they should um, mirror 
one another. And conversely, sometimes we can see kids that can't really express themselves. They can't access what they know and communicate verbally, which can be very challenging for them as well. It's absolutely correct. And and one of the challenging parts of that for a student with language-based learning disability is thinking about that vocabulary that they might use in oral language and then looking at the written production and you'll see simpler vocabulary, shorter sentences. If spelling hasn't been remediated, it can be difficult for somebody to decipher what was written on the page. And that can be so defeating for students who often have average to above average intelligence, and yet their academic performance, that's very visible. So when you think about when you put something on paper, that's a very visible representation that people around you see. And for that to inaccurately represent somebody's cognitive abilities can be so defeating. Right. And there are lots of ways that your written output can can poorly mirror your cognitive ability, right? So if you have limited spelling skills, you have limited vocabulary, and you have trouble with grammar and syntax, grammar and syntax being your understanding of ability, your understanding your ability to construct a sentence, understanding how verb tense works, prepositions and, and such, um, there's going to be a lot of ways that that can break down. Is that correct? Absolutely. And even what you make remind me of and bringing this up is the importance of oral rehearsal. When you think about that opportunity to say your sentence orally before you put all that effort into getting those words on the page, having the opportunity to do some of the correction before it's on paper. So you don't have to get it on paper and erase everything that you worked so hard. So that's where oral rehearsal, teacher modeling is so important and it, and it creates a success-orientated environment. So can you, can you talk to me about, so we have these, these students that have trouble with sometimes all of these domains and sometimes some of them, um, and they often have writing disabilities as well. The difficulty with spelling, often letter formation, creating, um, uh, using grammar and syntax, um, and their skills tend to be delayed as well. We, dyslexia and writing disorders kind of accompany each other. And we are also saying that often these students have accompanying difficulties with perceptive and expressive oral language skills. What, um, can you tell me how a lesson might appear, what some of the aspects of a a language-based lesson would be to sort of reinforce these four areas? You've described it really nicely to me in the past as to, to how are you weaving these things together? How does it look different than if for a student that's just in an inclusion classroom and is getting regular instruction, what are the pieces that are that are different for for language based uh, when you're receiving language based instruction? Sure, I think one the pace of instruction, uh, knowing that there's often working memory issues, we want to monitor the length and complexity. So my rate of speaking when I'm ta- when I'm teaching, I'm monitoring for that. I'm not going to avoid using complex language, but I'm going to tease out that vocabulary. I'm going to make sure that words that are going to be in the lesson that we preview, that we break them down. I'm modeling how to how to attack that word using decoding strategies. My favorite, because I think it's a very um, consistent and reliable strategy, easy to recall, is the dot and grab strategy, where you ident- recognize prefixes and suffixes, then you dot your vowels. It's a very consistent and reliable strategy that gets you close enough. So I'll be so teacher modeling, modeling how to use those strategies breaking down directions. I'm very numbering directions. So what's the first thing we do? What's going to be the second thing we do? The third thing, the review and practice is very important. Um, If you want to build your skill set to become more automatic, you need, I find students with, well, students with language-based learning disabilities need more review and practice to gain that automaticity with the different skill sets. So for example, a lesson that I might introduce on Monday, we're going to probably work on that all week in different ways. And I'm going to use a multimodal instructional model. So what does multimodal mean? Sure. So when you think about vocabulary, so we'll present the word, we'll, um, we'll, have a visual to supplement it. We'll talk about what the wording me- word means. I'll have the students practice using that word within a context. So we have um, 
a visual. We have semantic connections. Um, I might, we might use gestural cues. Oh, if we, especially when you're talking about verbs, um, if they're having trouble retrieving. So word retrieval and word finding is often another challenge that students with language-based learning disabilities have. So I might give a, a gestural cue. Um, I might provide a phonemic cue, different cues to help with that retrieval. And by modeling that strategy, the students are learning then how to cue themselves. And that's the ultimate goal. And everything that I'm teaching, it's very strategy-based because I want the students to become as independent as they can. So teaching the strategies is going to help these students to learn to manage their language-based learning disability so that they can learn in, in any classroom. So there's a couple of things I think I'm hearing you say. One being that if I'm thinking about it from a neurocognitive perspective, students with language-based learning disabilities often have difficulties with working memory, working memory being how much information you can hold in your short-term memory and manipulate. So that means how many directions can you follow, uh, how, how much information can you take in at one time. Often that needs to be modified for these students. So um, you can't give them five directions and think they're going to follow them. So you're modifying the amount of information and the load that you're giving to the students so that they can be successful and independent rather than having to turn to an adult and say, wait, I don't know, and having the adult have to give them the information again. So you're scaffolding that piece. And then the other piece that I'm thinking about from a neurocognitive perspective is that students with language-based learning difficulties have trouble with automatic retrieval or what you were saying, automaticity. So automatically pulling up information, uh, pulling up information that they may have learned and shown mastery of, but maybe they learned it two months ago or three months ago, it's hard for them to, to retrieve those concepts and apply them. So it sounds like for these students, they need a lot of prepping or preview. They need a lot of repetition of concepts so that they can try to integrate and apply those skills. Does that sound accurate? It does. And I would also say spiraling because if you did a skill, and, and it can be not just a matter of weeks, but we think about homework. In the classroom with the support, something may have made complete sense. And then when you get home hours later, trying to recall what you, how you did it in the classroom, even that amount, that short time span can be very challenging. And so that's why within a language-based classroom, oftentimes you'll see some very consistent things in, in terms of the agenda being on the board and then going through the agenda and then the first agenda item often being homework. If there's going to be homework in that class, going over it, going over the directions, doing an example in each section so that the student has a cue when they get home later, hours later, and they look down, they can see an example. Like, oh, I remember how to do this. If the action words and the directions are highlighted, that can be a place for a student who might have trouble initiating to know, oh, I'm going to circle first or I, I'm going to identify this first. And so you're really helping them manage this struggle with working memory and you're modeling it. So hopefully that's a strategy that carries on in that student's life. Right. So it sounds like you're helping them access the curriculum so that they they can, you're, you're, you're modifying the instruction so that they can access the curriculum. So you're not giving them too much information at one time. You're helping them spiral so that they're continuing to get exposures to information that they, they have, they have mastered and they need more practice with, but you're also scaffolding. You're not just, you're, you're scaffolding them so that they're gaining more independence and they're gaining strategies to help them apply for, for further learning. So the idea is not for them to receive intensive language-based instruction for the rest of their time, but to, to develop strategies that they can then apply in less scaffolded settings, less scaffold meaning not as intensive language-based instruction where we're, we're removing the amount of support that they're receiving. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So there's phases to remediation. And, and the goal is to involve the student, actively engage the student in the learning process, helping them learn about how they learn. And so I would build up to when I give out the homework, what's the first step you should do? And have the student say, I'm going to look at the directions. Okay, show me where they are. Where are they on the page? What do you think you should do next? So you have to progress to that. So they're actively engaging their brain and what do I need to do and how do I do it? And so I, my goal is to make the students less dependent on me and more 
um, able to manage their learning disability. That's my job is to teach them how to manage their learning disability because it's always going to be part of them. And it's so empowering for a young student when they learn, yes, this is part of me, but I'm going to learn how to manage this and, and be part of me so I can still be successful. Yeah, that that um, well, I'm sure that's a really gratifying experience as a as a teacher when you see that growth in a in a student and you see them transitioning. Can you talk a little bit about remediation? What what does remediation mean versus it, sort of being able to access with support? Because I think these are two really essential concepts. What does it what, when a student is in remediation? What does that mean? So remediation means you need direct instruction in targeted skill areas, and you really need to be well-versed in in doing a diagnostic approach. So doing your informal assessments, finding out what those target areas are for the student. And oftentimes for a teacher, they can look at the IEP with those goals and objectives. You look at, you put all those pieces together to find out what are the targeted areas. So- a direct instruction, that means, I think what you're saying is that would be your phonics-based instruction. That would be your language-based uh, writing instruction. Is that correct? This is something that's delivered by a special education teacher who's got certification and training. So this isn't general education instruction. This is somebody that's been identified with a learning disability and needs when you say direct instru- instruction, this is specifically design instruction to remediate a a learning disorder. And in in this case, we're talking about language-based learning disorders. Is that correct? Sure. And it needs to be sequential and highly structured uh, and you're building and and you have to be spiraling back and then building on that information each time on that skill set. And that's so important when I think about the Linda Mood Bell program and, and moving along within there, I would look, you have to have your progress monitoring and you look at if what typically my benchmark was when a student over five trials was 80%, at least 80% accurate, I would then look at what, what, what's the next layer I can add to that to get them to work, to continue to progress while, while um, keeping that spiraling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're bringing up the important issue of make of progress monitoring. That's something we talk about when we're collaborating with schools a lot is, is the student making effective progress and how do we measure that progress? So saying we, we need to, to make instruction sequential that they're built, the skills are building on one another. And before they can learn a higher skill, they need to learn these foundational skills and then build these skills. And they have to uh, achieve mastery of certain skills before they can develop other skills. So for example, you were just saying that um, one of the foundational skills of reading is decoding. That's sounding out, being able to sound out words. Um, it's very hard to access comprehension until you have your decoding uh, skills down and you can read fluently because you're not being able to really access or understand what you're reading. So that would be an example, that would probably be a, a pretty good example of of that. that exactly. Sense. And there's a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you're thinking about, um, so so that would be remediation. And then when you're thinking about um, going from remediation to when do you know a student is sort of shifting out of remediation? When they're applying the skills, then I want to really give practical application. So within a meaningful context, and this is one of the things that I often think about in a language-based program is when you're when you're teaching science or social studies to then build in and make sure that language-based instruction is carrying over. So for example, now you've you've read a passage and now you've there's these questions you have to answer. And maybe a couple of them are multiple choice and then short answer. And then you have one that you have to write a sentence response or a, a paragraph response. And shows showing the student which graphic organizer from your language arts class would you use to answer to, to, to provide this response. So students seeing how do I use this strategy in a in a meaningful practical application way. And that would be a good example of you have to have explicit instruction on showing how 
the skills that you use for writing, how do you apply them in different contexts? Same thing when it comes to math and you have that vocabulary. You really have to spend time working on the language of math. What, what do those terms mean? And not just rote memory. You need to conceptualize and talk about, um, give examples of what does this word mean? Yeah. So what I'm thinking of is often, so there's language-based instruction and then there are language-based classrooms. Um, and based on my work, and I think probably um, the students you would see, often when students are placed in language-based classrooms, which are uh, typically sub-separate placements, which means that someone is no longer in the general education setting, uh, their sc- skills are significantly delayed. They're sort of two to three, uh, approximately two to three grade levels below um, where they should be. Um, we're looking at students that, and as you said, then you're trying to remediate them so they can shift back and get their skills up. But when they're in in this in, in this setting and their, when their skills are significantly delayed. Um, can you tell me, um, what is it, how do you help them access content? Because now your skills are significantly below average, right? So you may be, say you're in, in third or fourth grade, but you're reading on a second grade level. So how do you access the content? Cause this is a big struggle. Um, if you're, if you're in a mainstream classroom, um, you are, you're still getting grade level content, but you're not really being able to understand it because you don't have the reading skills to, to access it. And so you're not really getting in the curriculum. How in a, in a language-based program, how is that modified to help you actually get the curriculum and actually access reading at your, at your reading level, which is actually delayed. So there's two different paths. So one is that there are companies that have the uh, topics with modified text. So oftentimes you can access um, the topics in a modified text, modified reading level. The other part is is I would have the text present. It would be on the screen um, for the students to see, and I would read it with the students. Before I even attempted that, we would pull out the vocabulary. And oftentimes I'd have the students help me with that, like looking at it, saying, does anything stand out to you here? And the, the students would say, there's some words that are that are darker than others. Yes, those are words that are in bold. Why do you think they're in bold? Oh, they must be important. Yes. And I would um, pull them out of the text. And if we would use the dot and grab strategy to break them down to read them, we would talk about what do you think they mean? What if I used it in this sentence? Does that help you know what it what it means, we can look it up, we'll make a visual. So we do a lot of pre-reading, um, teasing out that vocabulary ahead of time. Um, I'll also teach students, and we, we could look at what questions we're going to be asked be, before we even read the text. We'll look at headings, if there's um, a chapter heading. Oh, so what does that tell us? What do you think we're going to be reading about? So then we can know, oh, we're this particular passage is going to be about the planets. Great. We also teach the strategy of a word that you hear over and over again within a text or a synonym for that word is likely related to the main idea or is the main idea. So you're, you're teaching these strategies all the time for how to manage text. I'm also teaching once we've, so as I'm reading the text, it's on the board, we're going along, I'm reading at a slower pace, we're at the end of a paragraph, oh, what, what do you, I'm asking a question. What, um, what do you think the author wanted us to learn from that paragraph? What was a fact that you, and we might even put that in a column next to it so that we know, oh, when we have a question that's about this specific thing, it's in that paragraph. And I'm teaching them how to manage memory challenges too, because now when I have to go back, I know, oh, that was the paragraph that really focused on that detail. So now when I need to find my answer, I know where to go. So there again, you're micro-uniting, you're scaffolding, you're modeling strategies. These are all things that by doing that, eventually the student knows how to do that. The tool is in the toolbox. And when they're when they get to the point that the tools are in the toolbox and they might just need a prompting for when to use it, that's that's a sign that the, you're moving out of that remedial phase, that intensive remedial phase, when you're able to recognize, oh, these are the strategies I need. I need to do them here. And, and then it comes down to the time to be able to access those strategies. So that might be a time of, and, and you're able to access your grade level text. That's a time when an inclusion model, 
it might be a time to transition from um, a sub-separate classroom to maybe an inclusion classroom as you continue to move on that phase to being in a classroom that's not supported. Right. So it sounds like when you're in you're in a sub-separate, when you're in a language, specifically a language-based classroom, you're able to get the grade level content and at the same time through these instructional models, access enriching, intellectually stimulating material and and do those two tasks simultaneously, which is so important for students, for them to feel like successful learners. Because if you're in uh, say you're in third grade, but you're reading at a first grade level, you're in the classroom, but you're not really accessing because you don't have the literacy skills to access. So you're not, you're not only not building skills, you, you're not building confidence or you, you feel that lack of, you feel that lack of success. It, it, it affects self-esteem. There's a huge, uh, association with depression and anxiety. We often sometimes see behavioral issues as well. Um, and, and also you're not acquiring background knowledge, you're not acquiring vocabulary. Um, and so we, we often see that, but the, with the language-based instructional model that you're talking about, you're, you're having the opportunity while you're building up those low reading skills, the actual mechanical reading skills, to actually build the vocabulary and build the reading comprehension strategies. That, that sounds like what the model is designed to do. Absolutely. And I would like to say, even that one of the things that I've also see is that children who are struggling with language processing and they're being presented with text that's two grades above what they can read, as they're trying to keep up in the classroom, they can appear very inattentive because they're not able to keep up even with directions. Um, when you think about if the directions aren't read aloud, to be able to decode the directions to know what you're supposed to do. And then you're looking at a peer for a visual cue and they're three steps ahead of you. So in your ability to try to keep up, you appear very off task. Um, it can appear that you were really trying, you can't see cognitive energy, cognitive fuel. And so often I hear youngsters say, I was working so hard and it was taking me so long to decode it. But, and, by the time I finished, I didn't remember what I read and I went to answer the questions and and then the teacher thought I hadn't read it at all. Mm -hmm. and, and that's very frustrating because they did exert so yeah. much mental energy. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking and, and there's a defeat. So that when you mention the social emotional repercussions of an unremediated learning disability is so profound. And so I'm thrilled when I see intervention happening um, earlier on. It's so important to provide that intervention earlier on before we have walls of self-defeat, um, a negative self-concept, because then that's a barrier, barriers we have to break through. As the earlier you intervene. I mean, we know that from a neurocognitive perspective, the earlier that we receive intervention, it's easier to make gains. It's not that we can't make gains uh, later on, but the earlier we intervene, the easier it is to make gains. But also there's more more damage done emotionally the longer um, the the delays pro pro progress and, and your, the trajectory between um, a student's learning skills are the sort of the gap between how a learning disabled student's skills are progressing and their, their peers are progressing and how painful that is, um, is, is it, it takes a, a very large toll. Um, I wanted to go back to something else that you were talking about, which was pacing. I think pacing um, is also a really important piece for, for students when you're thinking about what's the right classroom placement um, in, and what students need. Uh, I'm just going to go back to the neurobiology or the neurocognitive piece for a second, is that some students that have complex uh, neurocognitive profiles and, and language-based learning disorders, they they often have weaknesses in processing speed. They often have um, graphomotor challenges. That means challenges with handwriting and 
fine motor coordination, which slow their processing rate. Uh, they also have difficulties with what you were talking about, uh, automaticity, which is how quickly they can retrieve information, um, and language processing. So how quickly can I pull up information that I know? Uh, how can I sequence a sentence? And this affects their processing rate. They're also reading slower, which clearly. Um, and um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that affects pacing for these students and um, what kind of classroom they they thrive in for pacing. We uh, These students often have average or most often have average to above average intelligence. So it's not that they can't learn, but um, their brains work differently and need a different setting or different, different instructional techniques as we're talking about today. So true. And so I think of, we used to call it the round robin format. And that you would have a starting point wherever it was in your classroom. And and so that one, it made sure that all students were participating, but you'd have your starting point. We're going to start with, um, say, Sarah on this point, and, and then you'd follow along whether your class was in rows or in a semicircle or however you sat so somebody could anticipate their turn. And so let's say you were working on compound and complex sentences. You had brainstormed your nouns already. They were on the board, the student could be on oh, the third person that's going to state a sentence and they could start thinking about that knowing their turn was coming. So that was some built-in extra processing time. Instead of having everybody wait when when the focus was on you, you could start anticipating and be ready for that and start um, preparing. So that's one way. I think another important thing that happens in a language-based in classroom is when a student's giving a response, if they're inaccurate, you're not just going to the next student, but you're saying, I'm giving them a cue. Oh, I like what you were thinking. You're on track. You were thinking of this category. We're now thinking about adjectives. Or you gave a noun. I'm asking for an adjective. And then guiding them so that it's success oriented. They end up giving the right answer or, or a more accurate answer. And you modeled a process and they're more aware of, oh yeah, I was still thinking about she, what, what you said a moment ago. We shifted now and now we're on to adjectives. And it's a much more success orientated way. So it, there again, you're, you're modeling, you're showing a process, you're guiding the student and you're keeping it success orientated. So that that's really interesting too, because if we're thinking about um, a student who would be placed in a uh, an inclusion or a general education setting, they wouldn't necessarily have the time. Um, not that it's not a great they're they're not using instructional practices. Not that the teacher uh, isn't a warm, compassionate teacher, but you wouldn't necessarily have the time to provide, as we were talking about scaffolding. Scaffolding is when you are not providing the student with the answers, but you're providing them with additional modeling and reinforcement to help them develop skills. And that's a perfect example of when you say, oh, you were thinking about this, let's, and and you give them a, additional information and approximations to the, so they can help arrive at the answer. Um, and it sounds like in the language-based classroom, you have enough time and you have enough opportunities to help guide the student. And the reason for that, even is when you think about a language-based classroom, the profiles of the students are going to be very similar. When you think about the disparity in a much larger group, so if you have 18 to 28 learners, there is going to be a much greater disparity between maybe your highest performance student and your lowest performance student. And trying to manage all of that in, in a classroom it is very challenging. And so therefore, it's crucial for language-based instruction, especially in the remedial phase, that you're placed in a classroom of students with a similar learning profile. So Joni, talking more about language-based classrooms and language-based instruction, let's really get drilled down and say, what is the definition of a, of a language-based classroom? People often talk about language-based instruction, language-based classrooms. <clears throat> you were working and were teaching in a language-based classroom for a very long time. So if anybody knows what that is, it would be you. Well, thank you, Avon. <laughs> Truly, a language-based classroom is where you're addressing the four domains of language throughout your entire day. And so you can see a substantially separate classroom. So this is a classroom community that is compiled of maybe five to eight students, 
all with similar learning profiles. They're getting intensive. These are students that are significantly below grade level, struggling with literacy skills, uh, managing language, um, writing sentences, written production on the word, sentence, and paragraph level who really need explicit instruction throughout the entire school day. And one of the dynamic parts of that is that the instructor who's providing that instruction all day is trained in the specific programs to address language-based learning disability. So therefore, when you're encountering text, modified text in your science class, you're learning to use dot and grab in a practical application that you might have had in your literacy group earlier in the day, but here you are in a practical application accessing text and applying that skill. And then you're also, when you're expressing your comprehension of what you was just presented to you in the text, and now you have to answer questions. Once again, that teacher is well-versed in the queuing and the graphic organizers and the sentence frameworks and providing word banks and how to guide that student to use those language-based instructional practices in a meaningful context accessing the modified text. In an inclusion model, you're less, you're not going to see that intensity quite often because there's quite a disparity within the learning profiles within that classroom. And, and that is a situation that's almost a bridge. When you're closing that gap, you can access text that's not modified. You might need um, extra time. You're still using those language-based practices, which are essentially good practices in teaching, where you're going to modify your rate of speaking. You're going to chunk information, uh, modify the length and complexity of the information, that, the language that you're providing. One of the differences sometimes in an inclusion model is a teacher that's trained in, say, Orton Gillingham or Lindy Mood Bell that really helps with that literacy piece may not be in that classroom to give the cueing in the moment for how to how to um, attack the text or decode the text. And so in a substantially separate language-based classroom, you, you often have that same instructor throughout your day who has that training so that within math class, if you're having trouble decoding a word, the instructor can give you that cueing to apply the strategies. One of the big differences between an inclusion model and a substantially separate classroom is you're fully immersed in the focuses on language throughout language instruction throughout the entire day. You're teasing out vocabulary. You're thinking about how do I attack how do I attack text? How do I respond to text, both orally and writing? How do I organize my language? It's a part of every lesson throughout the entire day. And in an inclusion model, you're not going to get that same level of intensity throughout your entire school day. And so there's definitely a time and as a student is getting remediation and we're really focused on closing the gap, that then that's a nice bridge to then um, getting into a classroom that's not supported. Right. So that's that's really helpful. So it sounds like in that setting, you would have a, a highly trained special education teacher who's got a master's level in special education and is trained in all of the reading and literacy programs. Um, whereas when we say inclusion, I think I've been throwing away, uh, throwing around the word inclusion. I should clarify that often uh, parents might also know that as mainstream education. So that would just be a general education classroom. So when we say the inclusion classroom, that's um, just the, the general education classroom, um, a typical um, classroom. So um, when we're thinking about a language-based classroom, what, what Joni's saying is that you would have your entire day within this, this specialized classroom and you would be receiving all of your instruction within this classroom and everything would be integrated so that you're you're integrating it to this language-based programming. Um, my follow-up question to that is often I work with a lot of school districts and 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 lots of school districts will say, well, we use language-based techniques. Now, they don't have um, a fully integrated language-based program where they have, or often, I, I wouldn't speak for all districts, but they don't have a fully integrated um, language-based program across the day, um, or they um, they just have sort of uh, partial pull-out services, but they say we use language-based programming. Uh, we use language-based instruction. Our, our general education teachers use language 
language-based uh, instruction. So can you tell me the difference, what that means and how that would be different than a language-based classroom? Because I think that can get confusing for parents. Um, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing by any means. I just want to know, just, I think it'd be helpful for people to know what, what that means and what the difference is. Sure. So I'll start with one of the components being that a substantially separate classroom, students are significantly below grade level. They need modified curriculum. And when you think about a general education classroom, not all of the curriculum is modified. And so that a learner needs to be not grade levels behind. So, but I will say, even there's five pillars that I look for, think are um, the foundational parts of language-based instruction. So for one, lessons must be designed to address the four domains of language, that being reading, writing, speaking, and listening as often as possible. So that's each lesson throughout the day. A simple example is you're working on compound and complex sentences. So the teacher might give a model, the students are listening, then they might be given a target word and the student is then orally stating, so they're speaking that sentence, uh, and then they're writing it down on the page, and then they're reading it back to proofread it. So you're tapping into those four domains, and each student is is having an opportunity to do all all parts, all parts where they're going to orally state their sentence, so they're doing the speaking, they're writing it down on their paper, and then they're reading it back to proofread. Uh, secondly, language-based instruction must be deliberately delivered by instructors who have extensive training in addressing the needs of students who are struggling with the domains of language. So that in involves a teacher who knows Orton-Gillingham or the Linda Mood Bell program in, in terms of addressing those reading challenges, knowing how to teach um, written language in a structured, sequential, from the word, sentence, paragraph level is, is very important. In addition, um, the third pillar would be language-based instruction needs to be incorporated, incorporated into all curriculum areas throughout the day, especially, you know, and I know you've heard me say this several times, but science and social studies, because that is where we encounter some of the toughest vocabulary. And so it's so important that we're really doing that language-based instruction. And it's often the time in a day when the student has to do so many parts of I have to decode it, I have to comprehend it, and then I have to express comprehension. And I'm supposed to do that efficiently. And so that really needs that direct instruction. The the other thing, sorry to interrupt you in your pillar, I love your pillars, um, is I'm, it's bringing to mind to me that as a student gets older, this is getting very conceptually difficult too. If we're thinking about science and social studies, the terms are getting really hard. The, if we're thinking about social studies, the facts, the level of conceptually, if we're thinking about history, the information, the, the, the load of information, conceptually, what we're thinking about is getting harder. So the amount of support actually needs to be more, not less. Um, if we're thinking about the lower grades, I think they can scaffold it more, but as we're getting older, it's actually getting more difficult for these students. Absolutely. And there's certainly that shift from learning to, to read to reading for meaning. And we see that happen right around third grade. And so progressively from there on, the length and complexity and the expectations just continually increase. And that's why it's so important to teach students study skills. So how, two column notes, how do I know uh, making note of what was that paragraph about? How do I go back and find the information? Because I'm not going to be able to recall it or retrieve it efficiently from my memory. So knowing how to use the text to be the holder of that information. So how do I navigate this text later on to find out where the answers are? And so you really needs to be strategy-based and especially in those study skill areas, learning how to do two-column notes. It's really teaching students how to micro-unit and manage all of the length and complexity of the language. So the fourth one is language-based instruction should facilitate automization of language skills through review and practice. So, so very important. Um, it, it's going to take longer to build that automotive. So you have to see it over and over again. When you think about building muscle, you have to do that workout. And, or if you're 
practicing for a sport that typically the more you practice, it, it impacts your performance. So that frequency and duration of practice then impacts our proportion. So our performance. So when you think about an athlete or you think about a scholar, that review and practice and the frequency and duration of it is going to impact your performance. Um, lastly, on the fifth pillar is language-based instruction must be delivered within a small group structured setting of students with similar learning profiles. We were just, this is kind of what we were just talking about, right? Is that if we have students with, um, with these more intense learning challenges that are several grade levels below, um, we have the educational setting really actually needs to be modified. And that's the setting that you were being, uh, that you were educating students in, um, that the, the, the curriculum is modified, the pacing needs to be modified, um, and, and the instructional techniques are, are need to be much more explicit. Um, and the, the, the pace, again, the pacing and the instruction, the, sometimes even, I think the, um, the amount of curriculum you cover, it changes also so that you can allow for comprehension and depth of understanding if I'm, if I'm understanding that correctly. You certainly are. And then having visuals um, in, in the room that the students can refer to as a cue. So those important math terms that they're displayed on the wall that the student can refer to, to for a cue to be like, oh, now I remember what that is. And often not just the words, but maybe a, a visual cue, a picture to go along with that term can really spark. And I've seen it so effective that during um, when I would be administering MCAS and I'd have to cover up everything in my room, I could actually see students looking to that part of the room and they're visualizing what was there. And it's a cue enough because they've seen it so many times and it's been consistent in that same location that they can picture what they need. And that's my ultimate goal is teaching these students to be as independent and as active in the learning process and learning about how they learn and what they need to be to be most successful. Right. So, so the goal is to, to remediate the skills to the point where the students can have the, the necessary literacy skills to be successful and removing the scaffolding uh, in a gradual manner uh, so that they can, they can reintegrate into a mainstream or an inclusion classroom. Absolutely. That, that's the goal. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. It was great to, to chat with you. Um, you have such a, an incredible depth of knowledge and um, what a joy to, to chat with you today. Thank you, Avon.